0: From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new
1: dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be-years on a thousand maybe worlds. X X, 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 minus minus, 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 1.
2: You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. I'm Dallas Taylor. The first radio broadcasts began about 100 years ago. At the time, some people thought that radio technology was a novelty. They believed it was too complicated to be useful. But over time, radio technology became smaller, cheaper, and easier to operate. Eventually, there was a radio in every household and every car. And it wasn't just music or news like today. There were full-fledged dramatic stories on the radio. When you listen to a drama instead of watching it, it forces you to dive headfirst into your imagination. In this episode, we're gonna take a trip back in time to when radio dramas were king. We made this episode with our friend, Eric Malinsky of Imaginary Worlds, which is an amazing podcast about the sci-fi and fantasy genres. Here's Eric.
3: When Emery Braswell was growing up in the 1930s, he used to love listening to radio drama serials. Well,
1: I listened to The Shadow. Who knows what
3: evil looks? The Lone Ranger? I don't
0: see
3: old man, Jack Armstrong, the old American boy?
1: I've got the dragon's eye ring on my finger, Uncle Jim.
3: But Emery's parents restricted the amount of radio he could listen to, especially at night. Although they made exceptions if Joe Lewis was boxing or if the president was addressing the nation. Then one night in October of 1938, Emory heard his father's Model A Ford pull up to the house, and he thought he heard Franklin Roosevelt on the radio.
1: Citizens
0: of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the
1: country. So I ran down and got in the car. My mother was sitting there too, and I said, "What? What? What's happening?" And he said, "Well, there's some kind of story going on." about an invasion, we're being invaded by Mars or something. My father sounded skeptical.
0: I wish to impress upon you, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action.
1: So I I listened to it, and sure enough, there was somebody supposedly from either the State Department or the government, as my family would say, talking about a meteor that had crashed in New Jersey and there were beings coming out of it, and they were destroying all the local militia and stuff.
0: The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean.
1: One of the fascinating parts about the program was it was a music program, and they would interrupt the music for bulletins coming from Jersey.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several...
1: I was just wide-eyed, dance. listening to it, trying to decide, well, is this all happening or not? My father was kind of skeptical, because when it was over with, he says, I think it's a hoax. As I said, we the business about the music going on and Bulletins coming made it seem much more real. Near
0: Columbus Circle, I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets.
1: Then, when the program was over, it seemed to go back to regular programming and we couldn't understand, and we listened for further announcements and nothing came. So, my father said, That proves it's a hoax. And, you know, I took it seriously. <laughs>
3: Eventually they learned that they had been listening to War of the Worlds, adapted by Orson Welles. Neil Verma teaches radio history at Northwestern University and he says there's a reason why young Emery Braswell thought he heard Franklin Roosevelt during that show. There's a moment in the War of the Worlds broadcast where the Secretary of the Interior
4: comes on the, you know, the microphone in the world of the fiction. And originally that piece was written to be not the Secretary of the Interior, but President Roosevelt. But the CBS network said, no, 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 you can't have President Roosevelt's voice if it's not actually President Roosevelt. People will get confused, we'll get in trouble, we can't do it. And so Orson Welles says, "Okay, well, we'll change it to the Secretary of the Interior. And then the actor who portrayed the role goes up to Welles, according to legend, and says, well, I don't know how the Secretary of the Interior sounds. And Welles says, don't worry, he sounds just like Roosevelt.
5: I mean, that's the achievement of War of the Worlds, I think, is it sounds like the weather forecast, it sounds like a radio show playing music, and then gradually it shifts. That's Richard J.
2: Hand. He teaches radio drama at the University of East Anglia in the UK.
5: And I think that's one reason it had such impact, is that understanding we can take a genre and then jump a form and use the, the, the structures and formula and conventions of another form in order to tell a story. When we think about pop culture in the 20th century, we
2: tend to focus on movies, television, or pop music. It's easy to forget that radio was the dominant form of entertainment for decades. There were hit shows in every genre, but science fiction in particular kept pushing the boundaries of what the medium could do.
3: And these kind of radio dramas actually laid the groundwork for stories that couldn't be done on film for decades because special effects weren't good enough. In some ways... They're like the missing cultural link between genre fiction and the movies and shows that we watch today. But they're also standalone works of audio art that can play with the human imagination in ways that the printed word and the visual image never could. There is such a rich history of sound and radio dramas.
2: They capture your imagination in a special way. It's a really unique experience compared to watching a movie or watching a television show. So let's start by zooming out and looking at the big picture. When did the golden age of radio dramas really start?
3: They really seem to have taken off in 1934 when the FCC was created, which is the Federal Communications Commission, which is still around today. And that's around the time that the network started forming, too, like CBS and NBC.
2: Which are also still around today, but mostly in the form of television.
3: Yeah. And Neil Verma says that, you know, when the networks got into the business of making these highly produced radio dramas, they were not exactly motivated by noble reasons. If they couldn't demonstrate a a level of public service that they were giving to uh,
4: the listeners out there, then they ran the risk of further government regulation and intrusion. And so all of the money they were making out of selling all that boot black and soup and, and yeast and tea would be taken away. So they enshrined in their mandate the idea of creating high cultural content. And for a lot of them, that meant making
3: radio drama. If we look at the big picture, each decade of radio drama had its own style. The radio dramas in the 30s were very ambitious. They grappled with big nationalistic ideas because it was the Depression. And then in the 40s, the anxiety around the war got channeled into radio dramas that were more like film noirs, or I guess you could call them radio noirs. Neil Verma actually had a good way of putting it. In the 1930s radio is is kind of a theater in the mind so
4: it's a big kind of theatrical space that you're supposed to imagine your mind and in the 1940s it becomes
3: really a theater about the mind and then in the 50s radio dramas were very influenced by the cold war with the aliens standing in for the soviets there's a really famous radio drama called zero hour from 1955 which was written by ray bradbury actually a lot of famous sci-fi writers got their start in radio and the alien invasion is told from the point of view of a woman who discovers that the kids in her neighborhood, including her daughter, have been co-opted by these interdimensional beings. And the parents think at first that the kids are playing a game, but slowly this woman begins to realize the truth.
0: Looking out the window. Me? Who are you talking to? The rosebush, mom. Only it's not really a rosebush. That's Drill. Well, who's Drill? He's planning the invasion. Oh, what an imagination. You'd better come in, dear, and clean up for supper. In just
3: a second, Mom.
4: The main character, uh, played by Isa Ashdown, is immobile. Uh, almost all of this play takes place in her kitchen or living room. Most of the interplay between her and her daughter, the ones where she comes to suspect that the daughter is collaborating with this evil alien, happen at just outside the edge of our earshot. Mom?
1: Dad? Are you in the attic? Henry, listen...
4: Mink. It's Mink. We've got to
0: save her. Henry, don't you understand? She's leading them. What? She's leading them. She's on their side, Henry. Oh, please, God, forgive them. The
1: children? On their side?
0: She told us, but we wouldn't believe her. Shh, listen. They're coming up. Oh, God.
4: Mom, Dad, we know you're in there.
2: God, that is so eerie. I love it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people have a misconception that radio dramas from this era were really goofy or naive.
3: Yeah. I mean, I used to think that it was just like two guys begging coconuts together in front of a, <laughs> a microphone being like, look, the horse is coming.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. But, and that was true for some radio serials, especially the ones aimed at kids. But when I listened to these shows, I couldn't believe how dark and weird they were. Well, for that era, how exactly was the FCC okay with that? Well, it's funny because the FCC was more concerned with, like, obscenity or overt political messages. Or as we heard earlier, you can't have someone impersonate Franklin Roosevelt. But radio was not under the same kind of moralistic code that Hollywood was back then, where they were really restricted by what kind of stories they could tell or couldn't tell. And Neil Verma thinks it's because censors really fear the power of visual images, but they underestimated the power of audio to create images in our mind. Almost everyone talks about radio as a blind medium, which is a kind of peculiar way of thinking
4: about a medium. Like, no one talks about sculpture as a deaf medium. And so it's, it's strange to characterize or essentialize a medium by something it can't provide. People who kind of are boosters for the medium will say, don't talk about what, what radio doesn't have, an image, and talk about how its images can be more malleable than images that take on some kind of physical visual form. Okay, so now I'm really
3: intrigued. Eric, can you give me some more examples of this really dark stuff? Well, thrillers were the dominant format, especially in the 40s, but they weren't just spy thrillers
5: or detective shows. A lot of these radio dramas are what we would categorize as horror today. Some things that we might think of post-George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, this kind of unhappy ending, you're getting it in the 30s and 40s. Again, that's Richard Hand. You know, and, and one, one great example of that was uh, Arch Obler's play Burial Services, which is about, you know, a very Ed Allan Poe-esque story about a young woman being buried alive in a coffin. And we hear the inside of her head, a kind of stream of consciousness because she's not dead. She's in a catatonic uh, fit or, or whatever it might be. Um, but no one rescues her. Unfortunately, there's no recording of that particular piece, but the response was phenomenal, you know, and there was lots of letters of complaint and shock and disgust, and Arch Obler thought he'd get sacked, but actually the station were happy saying, wow, if there's this many people complaining, how many people are listening? This is fantastic.
2: (laughs) A lot of these shows, especially in the 30s and 40s, were live, and listeners really were disgusted. If the FCC decided to clamp down, the networks would simply promise not to do it again, and they couldn't because it was live.
3: The most famous horror story from this era was The Thing on the Forble Board, which was from an anthology series called Quiet, Please. This was around 1948. It's mostly a monologue from an oil field worker, and he's telling the story about he and his friend found an alien creature on a forble board, which is like a catwalk on an oil rig. And he describes this creature as having the head and torso of a girl but the body of a giant spider.
0: But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth, come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well, come to an alien world, and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint, blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. Its hand was stone, living, moving stone.
3: As this character is talking, he's waiting for his wife to come out. And eventually we realize his wife is the creature. We're not a passive listener. We're her next meal.
0: I'm afraid maybe I've fallen. But it's very beautiful. I can disguise the body in long dresses. She can't hear very well. And when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no, sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. There she is. Come on in, dear.
2: Oh my goodness. So... It's like the difference between reading a book and watching a movie. There's always something that's lost because these words are being tapped into a different part of your brain that are triggering kind of this deeper intellect. Mm. This whole clip is like the perfect example of how I don't want to see any of this stuff. And even if it was visual, you'd lose a lot of this deep inner thought. So this whole audio-only communicating I don't think could be done the same way visually because it's hitting me in a totally different place in my brain
3: than if I was absorbing that through my eyes. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because when I was listening to this, I started imagining, okay, if this was a live action movie in the 70s or 80s, it would have been some kind of stop motion creature. Yeah. Which may have seemed scary or a puppet, but I mean, it would have gotten dated. Today, the creature would be CG, which I have a big issue against a lot of CG stuff. I think it looks so fake. Yeah. Either way, something would have been lost horror films in the 1940s were nothing like this. When this episode came out in 1948, the big kind of, quote, horror movie that year was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein.
2: In the 1950s, the television became more accessible. Because of this, radio dramas began to slowly decline in popularity. But in the 1970s, and even today, radio dramas have made a surprising comeback. More after the break. NetSuite has simple solutions for complicated business problems. For example, let's say you open a bakery. Before long, your hotcakes are selling like, well, hotcakes, but you keep running out of ingredients. No problem, because not only can NetSuite automate your purchasing so you're never out of stock, but it can also check that your staff have the right training to make those hotcakes to perfection. NetSuite can even handle online orders so your hotcakes can really take off. Having one system handling all of this saves both time and money. And if there's two things we all want more of, it's time and money. Okay, so three things if you include hotcakes. That's probably why more than 37,000 businesses have already signed up for NetSuite by Oracle. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com 20k now to take advantage of this offer. That's netsuite.com 20k. Netsuite.com slash 20K. Radio dramas create some of the most vivid and exciting listening experiences. But one of the things that fascinated me in researching the history of radio dramas was just how people listen to them.
3: Typically, we imagine an entire family sitting in the living room, staring at a radio, waiting for it to eventually evolve into becoming a television set. Which is true to some extent. But in
2: this era, people were used to listening to the radio in the car. And there were these little devices called crystal sets. They were these crude pieces of technology with a copper wire that acted as an earbud. So these people were listening on portable devices, just like we do.
5: And that makes it such a unique experience. It's not cinema, is it? You know, it's, it's not these other cultural forms. It's something that invading your domestic space. And I think that's why science fiction and horror understood that on radio.
2: It's also fascinating how they used sound effects to stimulate the listener's imagination. Neil Verma talked about a pioneer in the field named Aura Nichols. She worked with Orson Welles for years.
4: In The War of the Worlds, there's this famous scene where uh, you can hear the Martian vessel cooling, and she did that by taking a cast-iron pot and rubbing its two sides together to make that really specific, grindy voice.
0: Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer, here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now?
4: Uh, she also built machines, and there were companies that would put together uh, you know, what we would think of as sound effects libraries on transcription disks. And Richard
2: Hand says audio engineers had all sorts of shortcuts ready to go just
5: like that. Say, if you wanted to simulate a gunshot, Sometimes they'd use a metal rod and hit a leather seat and you get that crisp bang sound and that would work really well. I've got
0: a gun! Much to you, Shabbos! Must- <laughs>
5: and this is one of my favourite things I demonstrate if I'm doing a practical session on radio where you can take a, a cork uh, and wet it and squeak it against um, the side of a bottle or a saucer and that was the effect they used for the sound of rats because you get this squeaky, squeaky sound.
2: But none of this mattered if the mic wasn't placed properly. That may sound like a minor detail, but Neil Verma says mic placement was crucial, not only with props, but with actors, too.
4: The world that is the off-mic environment, that's where radio drama happens. Um, And that's how you create really important relationships, like what character are you close to? What character do do you listen to?
2: In the 30s and 40s, radio dramas were performed live, so there was a limit to how many of the tricks you could do. But in the 1950s, they moved over to pre-recorded magnetic tape, which gave the audio engineers a lot more creative freedom. And radios themselves became more sophisticated, so listeners could hear this subtler sound design.
3: Speaking of advances in technology, the conventional wisdom of the time is that radio dramas went out of fashion because TV came along.
2: And that's true to some extent. The networks did move a ton of money and talent over television, but something else pushed radio dramas off the air. It was rock and roll. Remember, these were commercial radio stations, and they catered to the marketplace.
3: But radio dramas kept going in the UK.
2: Well, that's because the BBC is government-funded, and that's not really something that happens in the States as much. And they also have multiple outlets, so they could play rock on one channel and radio dramas on the other. And on top of all of that, they could create a television network or multiple television networks.
3: So it wasn't like a zero-sum game.
2: Not at all. And you talked with someone who worked at the BBC at the time.
3: Yeah, Dirk Maggs. He's been directing radio dramas for decades.
6: I try and think through the sequence of events of even the shortest, quickest sound.
3: He's mostly worked with the BBC, but he's been working with Audible lately. He did this adaptation of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, this big flat world on the back of a group of elephants
6: that are the back of a giant turtle that's swimming through space. You know, you're thinking, oh, how the hell do you do that? But, you know, you take it sequentially, describe the turtle, describe the elephants, describe the world that's on there, and then go into the world. That would be my way of going at it.
3: But when Dirk Maggs got to the BBC in the late 1970s, he says that radio dramas were still going, but they were feeling a little stale creatively. And there were a lot of legacy shows that had been on the air for years. And then in 1978, Douglas Adams, who was a writer on Doctor Who, created this really unusual radio drama called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In fact, it wasn't even a drama. It was an epic science fiction comedy, which is a genre that had just never been done before, at least on the radio.
6: They really didn't think it was going to get much of a listenership, so they put it on at half past ten at night. It was not expected to do much business, and by the third week, the listening figures they were getting back were through the roof. For myself, going into the BBC as a technician, it was the only thing everybody was talking about. As you will no doubt be aware, the plans for the development of the outlying regions of the western spiral arm of the galaxy require the building of a hyperspace express route through your star system. And, regrettably, your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition. The process will take slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. Thank you very much. There's no point in acting all surprised about it. All the planning charts and demolition orders have been on display at your local planning department in Alpha Centauri for 50 of your Earth years, yes. so you've had plenty of time to lodge any formal complaints, and it's far too late to start making a fuss about it now.
3: The radio show was such a hit, Douglas Adams, of course, adapted it into a best-selling novel, actually a series of novels, and then the BBC adapted those novels back into radio. And eventually, Douglas Adams chose Dirk Mags to work on the later radio shows.
6: I think Hitchhikers worked as a radio drama for the reasons that it really didn't quite come off either as a television series or as a movie. If you have a story that the very beginning of it is the end of everything, I mean, that's the conceit. The first episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy destroys the Earth and everybody on it, and it leaves just two humans... Actually, only one human in the first episode alive. That is so vast and so ambitious an idea that, well, for a start, you're going to listen to the next week's episode to know where does this go from there? But secondly, the enormity of it. If you are in that imaginative state where all these these, uh, images are coming to you and you combine that with writing which says, the Vogon ships hung in the air in precisely the way that bricks don't. It, you know, it could only be born in an audio medium. It's 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 too big in a way to combine those elements. And that's the that was Douglas's achievement.
2: Eventually, radio drama got a second life in the US, too.
6: Thanks to science
3: fiction again. This is around the same time, late 1970s, NPR was struggling, which is hard to imagine because NPR is a powerhouse today, but it was still pretty new back then. And the president of NPR, Frank Mankiewicz, thought that a radio drama event could bring in new listeners. So he asked John Houseman for advice.
2: John Houseman was an actor and one of the founders of Juilliard. He also worked with Orson Welles back on War of the Worlds. Houseman recommended that they hire an audio engineer named Richard Toskin to create this big radio drama event.
7: Having been handed this hot potato, I went back to John Houseman and I said, "Um, "Okay, you got me this job. How do you think I could develop an audience for public radio in America? How would you do that? Uh, And in his sort of Professor Kingsford voice, he, after thinking a moment, he said, create a scandal.
3: This is the late 70s. I mean, at that point, what is still shocking? And then a friend of Richard said, kind of jokingly, why don't you do Star Wars on the radio? And he thought, huh. Here was,
7: at the time, the most visual film Hollywood had ever made. And to say you were going to turn that into radio just sounded so outlandish that it had to be possible. And I think the other thing that was feeding into that is everybody at NPR under Frank Mankiewicz, that is anybody below Frank, was scandalized by the idea. You know, this was seen as... uh, the most lowbrow, boring kind of thing. The result, of course, was that after the 13 episodes aired, uh, despite all the, uh, the sniping and whatever from NPR, the measurements that then came in showed, according to NPR, that it had raised the audience for NPR by 40%.
2: NPR's Star Wars was groundbreaking in other ways, It was also in stereo, which was not common back then. They got Lucasfilm to lend them Ben Burtt's sound effects and the John Williams score. They had to recast most of the actors except Mark Hamill, but Richard Toskin says the recasting worked in their favor.
7: Part of the idea is that we didn't want the series, or at least I didn't want the series, to be a clone of the film. You know, I didn't want people to sit down in front of their radio and say, oh, this is, you know, I remember this from three years ago or whatever. Remember, Star Wars was a two-hour
2: movie. This was a six-hour, 13-part radio drama. So they got the late writer Brian Daly, who had written Star Wars spinoff novels, to add additional scenes that were not in the movie.
0: Are you prepared to kill?
2: So we got to hear all about Leia's relationship with her father on Alderaan.
0: I didn't start this. The Empire did. I want only to stop it, Father. <sighs> it may be too late even for that. Why? The wounded rebel you brought home gave us his information. The Empire has a secret project underway.
2: And we got to hear Luke's training with Obi-Wan Kenobi.
6: Now, your blade. Boy, this lightsaber feels kind of like it's alive. It is in a way through you. Ready?
0: First defensive posture.
3: And Neil Verma says that NPR's Star Wars actually had a huge influence on the generation coming of age in the 70s and 80s that may have seen radio dramas as passe you know a lot of people who make audio dramas
4: today look back at this as the gold standard but I, I think it's not just the gold standard because of those the great score or the great sound effects or any of those sorts of things but I think because it it really it creates these deep senses of character um, out of what what had been relatively two-dimensional characters. And that's something that a lot of uh, audio dramas these days like to explore. It's become a much more writerly medium.
2: Most of these old radio dramas are available for free online, so it's a hidden treasure trove to discover. I find it amazing that these shows were built for the analog world, but they're also perfect for the digital age. Today, thanks to podcasting, audio dramas are making a huge comeback, And not only that, they're becoming so popular that there are major television networks starting to notice. We're now seeing television adaptations of audio shows. Just look at Homecoming, Lore, Startup, and others. I believe audio dramas are gonna continue to grow in popularity. And who knows, maybe we'll make one. But in the meantime, if there are any big shot studio executives looking for a television series about sound, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 20,000 Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound. Find out more at defactosound.com. This episode was written by Eric Malinsky with help from assistant producer Stephanie Billman. You should take a moment to immediately go subscribe to Eric's podcast, Imaginary Worlds. I have no doubt you'll love it. Just search Imaginary Worlds in any podcast player. Over on the 20,000 Hertz side, thanks to Sam Sneebly, who helped produce this episode, along with Nick Sbradlin, who mixed and adapted this episode. Thanks also to our guests, Emery Braswell, Richard J. Hand, Richard Toskin, Dirk Mags, and Neil Verma. The music in this episode is from our friends at Musicbed, and now you can use their music too. For the first time ever, they now have membership plans. Check it out and sign up at music.20k.org. Finally, you can engage with me and the rest of the 20,000 Hertz team through our website, Facebook, or Twitter, or by writing hi at 20k.org. Thanks for
0: listening.